Hey folks, Dave Harvey here, and this is the Am I Called podcast. And there's a couple of things, actually three things that make today's podcast really special, at at least to me. Uh, First, number one, is that we are recording this from a hotel in Naples, Florida. And that's uh, a hotel where Sojourn Network is having our annual retreat. This is just a time where we we pull together the lead pastors and their wives for a little bit of refreshment and to create some memories together. Secondly, sitting across from me is Paul Tripp, and I'm about to begin an interview with him. But let me mention the third thing as well, and that is that we have we have stuff. We have all kinds of free stuff to give away to you over the next 30 minutes. And so I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a second. But let, let's not delay the interview for another minute. So Paul Tripp <laughs> has been on the Am I Called podcast before. And so he's a guy who typically needs no introduction. He's Paul's a prolific writer. In fact, we're going to be giving away his new book, which is called Sex in a Broken World Tomorrow to the lead pastors and wives. And I'm going to share with you a couple of ways to get that free today. But uh, one of the things that I love about Paul is his commitment to travel and to serve this next generation of leaders and pastors. And he has had that commitment ever since the day I've met him. I'm grateful for him. I'm grateful for his friendship to Kim and I, which has delivered over time a a faith-boosting confidence in God in moments that were most necessary. Paul, it's great to have you with us. It's wonderful to be with you. So, Paul, many, many folks that are listening uh, are aware of, of your health issues, and I think some folks have even been praying. And so the last podcast we did, I think, was around that issue and around how you're thinking about suffering these days. So I thought maybe we'd start by you just giving an update of how things are going. Well, by God's goodness to me, I think that I'm done having a surgery every four months. Uh, Mm. About a year ago, I had a very difficult surgery, but it seemed to do the job. Uh, What I'm left with is I've lost 65% of my kidney function, so I'm left with the symptoms of that uh, that um, have been difficult. Uh, I was the uh, epitome of the Energizer Bunny, a man with endless energy and ability to produce because of that and the word ministry maniac comes to mind yes that's right i used to say that sleep was a necessary interruption of an otherwise productive day (laughs) uh and the number one symptom of my kidney damage is fatigue Hmm. and that has been very difficult um there have been wonderful, wonderful things for my heart in the midst of that because I've been confronted with the fact that much of what I would have thought was faith in Christ was just confidence in my own strength. And to understand that God doesn't need me to be strong to use me is a humbling thing. It's an encouraging thing. This has been a very, very productive time of ministry despite my weakness Uh, but I will be honest there are days when it's hard there are days when my brain has a vision that my body can't participate in and um, I'm still able to be quite productive uh, 
still doing most of the things that I once did, just doing them in a, in a different way. And got a surrounded by a team of people that make me look like I'm doing much more than I'm actually doing, <laughs> for which I'm very thankful. They're just good stewards of the content that God allows me to produce. So I'm, I'm a very, very thankful man. I'm thankful for just a deeper understanding of God's presence and God's grace. And I've said this many times, if this is what it takes for God to get at my heart, I'm in. The suffering's worth it. Yeah. It seems like part of what takes place when a, a leader or a, a wife or a lady suffers in this way is that they're you know, they, they move towards the, the Second Corinthians motif of, of leadership, which is that it moves from strength to weakness mm-hmm. and, and, and therefore to power. Because mm-hmm. I know one of the things that you're, you're saying is that you've actually been remarkably productive in this season, mm-hmm. and yet it's come out of incredible weakness. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were telling the story earlier this morning about getting the parenting book and looking at the parenting book, and, and you said you didn't even remember writing it. Mm. Is, that, is that right? Did I yeah, remember that? Yeah, abso- absolutely. And f- for the first time in all the books I've written, I sat down and read through my own book. That's what God is able, able to do. And I want to add this little piece that one of the comments again and again about that book is just how it brims every page with God's grace. And... That's because I, when I wrote it, I was holding on to God's grace mm-hmm. with everything I could hold on with. Uh, and I don't believe that that is just a coincidence. I think that's an intention. God uh, used my weakness to display his grace on the page because that's what his children need. Parenting's hard. Mm. It's, it's discouraging. It's difficult. And... Uh, I think I was able to talk about those diff- difficult things in a way that ends up encouraging parents. Yeah. So you've been writing. And mm. You're releasing books, and you've got mm. more on the way. And, mm. and one of the more recent ones that you released is called Sex in a Broken World. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that because uh, that is such a relevant topic for the church. It's such an important topic for pastors. And so maybe the place to begin would be to hear from you on, you know, what, what were you seeing among Christians that made it seem like a book on sex was an essential project right now? It, well, it, it, it first was just living in the culture that we lived in. I can remember, I don't know what the, the initiating incident was, looking at Luella and saying, we have just gone sexually insane. There's no more sanity out there. We, we can't even agree on vocabulary anymore mm-hmm. to talk about the topic. And you, you, you almost can't look at your phone, the internet on the phone, or Netflix, or a movie, or whatever, without some way having your morals assaulted. It's just crazy. And then uh, the... The second awareness was the church has been infected by that same insanity. There's craziness going on inside of the church. We've, we've 
lost our way in this area and uh, the amount of Christian men, uh, the amount of pastors who are just addicted in some way to internet pornography is, is a massive scandal in the church. And so it was one of those books that I just couldn't not write. Mm-hmm. I just thought if, if all this book does is start conversations, it's worth it. Seems like part of the insanity is is how there is a a fierce trending towards separating. There, there's a pathology towards separating sex from the Creator, and and sex becomes corrupted when it becomes an end rather than a means. And we're living in a world that has made sex and mm. an end. And I think you write about that. A bit. Well, I I think in in terms of the church. What we've done is we've there, there's three things we've we've isolated sex the discussion of sex as if sex lives in isolation from everything else. That is that is not true of anything in creation. Anything in creation is connected to everything else that God has designed for us. So you you can't ever look at anything in in isolation. The second thing we've done we is a bad hermeneutic. We've handled sex scripturally as if the Bible is written topically. And so we look for the sex verses. The problem is that's not the way the Bible's written. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, the Bible is essentially a grand redemptive story. Maybe the best way to say it is a theologically annotated story. It's a story with God's uh, explanatory and applicatory notes. So you, if you just look at the sex passages, you miss the vast majority of the information that you need to have to understand sex. Third thing is we've had a law-based discussion of sex. That means generally that the discussion about sex is what are we allowed to do and what are we prohibited to do. Now let's think about that for a moment. That is a horrible way to examine anything. If I would say, look at a man with three children, and I would say, he's not abusing his children. That doesn't mean he's a good father. Mm -hmm. There's a long distance from being the kind of father God wants him to be and saying he's inside these legal boundaries. It's just an awful way of looking at anything. But you take the isolation the topical handling and the law-bound way of discussing this, no wonder the, the enemy has had an opportunity in this area in our life. This is, this is an unbiblical way of handling the Bible, and it doesn't work. Paul, talk to the pastor right now or the leader who has people coming to him or to her, and, uh, and, and they hear this constant refrain from from folks saying because i have desire because there is a desire for pleasure i it should be satisfied that the the nature of desire is to look for satisfaction how should they be responding to that well we have to be very careful that we we're not anti-pleasure god designed a gloriously pleasurable world uh 
pleasure is actually God glorifying. And God uh, designed us with all kinds of pleasure gates. Your skin, your eyes, your nose, your ears, uh, your mouth. Uh, that's so we could take in those pleasures. But it's very clear that Scripture teaches and life would reemphasize that pleasure always requires boundaries. You, you, there's, there's no domain in your life where you can have boundaryless pleasure and be okay. You cannot eat whatever you want at what quantities you want without hurting yourself. You just can't. You can't, if you find exercise pleasurable, you could not exercise 10 hours a day. You would kill yourself. And so whatever pleasure there is, there are boundaries necessary in order to enjoy the best of that pleasure without hurting yourself. And who would be better able to define for us the boundaries than the person who created the pleasure in the first place? That's the beauty of God's requirements. They're not meant to end pleasure. They're meant to free us to fully experience those pleasures without the damage that pleasure unbridled can do to us. Yeah, it's, it's almost like there is an, uh, an over-realized eschatology that is, is embedded in, in the fallen man, meaning a desire to, to achieve in this life what will only be achieved in the next life and will only be achieved in God. So I th when I think about heaven, I think about pleasures forevermore. I think about a, a place where there won't be those necessary parameters because we will be experiencing the pleasures of God and, and not having to deal with pleasure in brokenness, pleasure in a fallen world. So look what you just did. You have said you can't actually understand sexual pleasure without looking at it from the vantage point of eternity. That's what you just did. Yes. And, and that's what we have to do. We have to take those grand themes of the Word of God and say, how they, do they exegete what my sex life should be like? Uh, well, here's what, here's what we know, that I will never turn this now moment into paradise. This will never be paradise because what is going on now is not a destination it's a preparation for a further destination. And so I can't live with a paradise mentality now requiring that God gives me what he's planning for then, now. It just, won't, it just don't work. So eternity is a very helpful lens on sexual sanity. But it's, there's all kinds of other chords that I need to hold that thing, mm -hmm. sex, in balance. So before we move into our next question on this topic, I want to mention that Crossway has given away free online copies of, of Paul's book. That's electronic copies of, of the very book that we're talking about, Sex in a Broken World. So we're going to include a link in the show notes so you can just check those out so that you can get a free copy if you want it. And we're also giving away a bunch of free copies, uh, actual physical copies, and I'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. But Paul, in the beginning of one of your case studies, 
is a, a, a pastor who has lost confidence in God. He's lost confidence in his own gifts because so many men in his church have fallen into sexual sin. And, uh, and in this case study you have, you say that, quote, sex was eating a hole in his church and there seemed to be no stopping it. And so I wanted to ask you if, let's say that there's a pastor or a leader that's, that read that, they're listening right now, where should they start in thinking about practical steps in moving forward? Yeah, I think that your, often your instinct is, how can I stop these guys from doing bad things? The answer to that is, you can't. It's not your job. Uh, you can't, you have no ability to change the, the, the heart of a man but what you can do is uh, ask the question, what, what is it about the way this man thinks about himself, these men think about themselves, think about God, think about life, that uh, dehumanizing, damaging, uh, illicit, sexuality has such a grip on them what how how as a pastor can i help these guys get at the the root of this now you do this believing that the spirit of god empowers the word of god into the hearts of people to rescue and transform them so i believe in the power of delivering and transforming grace and a belief that God's word is a primary tool in, in doing that. Uh, what is it about the way that these men live in the world that they live in that sets them up for temptation? What is the way they think about their wife? There's so many of those questions I wanna ask Rather than thinking that my intervention as a pastor should be just stop it, just stop it. Uh, if, if that kind of intervention worked, Jesus would have never had to come. <laughs> uh, the Old Testament would have been enough. Yeah, and, and it, is a, it is a pastoral sort of, Desire. How can I just seek these guys to stop it? But again, uh, sexual sin is has uh, tentacles into all kinds of places in that person's heart and life. And if you don't cut those tentacles, you won't actually deal with the thing that you'd love to see those men delivered from. So if you were thinking about a teaching series where you could begin to address this from scripture uh, and it was either you can talk about confining it to a group of men or on a Sunday morning where would you start to address the issue of sexuality that's a, that was embodied in that in that case study we were just referencing I would start with the first four words of the Bible I think the first four words of the Bible are the most important is the most important sexual text in all of scripture what do you mean by that? In the beginning, God. That um, I have to 
decentralize myself, my desires, my wants, uh, what I want to do with the parts of my body, what I want to do with my eyes, what gives me pleasure, and place God as central in my sexuality. Uh, sexuality is inescapable, inescapably an act of worship. Because in sex, I'm worshiping myself, I'm worshiping sex, I'm worshiping the body of that other person, or I'm worshiping God. And so here's the problem with the way we think about Scripture. I don't think you could find three people on in the normal church who would ever think that Genesis 1 has anything whatsoever to do with their sexual life. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Because we don't think that sex has verticality to it. We think it's totally a horizontal thing. And what God has done, he's been kind of mean to me, and he just cut me off from all the horizontal things that give me pleasure. Because he's God and he can do that. Well, that's all you're left with if you don't have the vertical dimension in your thinking. So that's where I'd start. That, and I would, I would begin to help men understand it's not just sex, that sex is just another rendition of other places where they've made themselves central. Uh, maybe that man who has a pornography problem has a messed up relationship with his wife because he's controlling and he treats her mean when she gets in his way. And maybe he's an angry father because he likes peace at night and his kids make noise. And maybe he's in debt because he spends too much on things that give him temporary happiness. And maybe he's overweight because, do you see my point? Mm -hmm. This is just one rendition of the fact that this man has made himself central in life that is delusional, uh, self-harming way of living. And the very first words of the Bible say, oh, by the way, this is not about you. You must embed your personal story in the larger story of the existence of God, or you'll harm yourself and you'll harm others. Yeah, and it seems like what happens when we lose view of that is that the organ of desire corrupts and it turns inward. So that rather than it being upward and Godward and having God as a, as a fixed point of reference for desire, I mean, it, it gets back to the C.S. Lewis quote, you know, about us being half-hearted creatures. He says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Mm. And he talks about how it's, it's, it's sex and ambition he mentions specifically and that, that uh, you know, we're, we love being kids making, making mud pies by the slum when we can't imagine, we can't envision what it really means to, to have a holiday at the sea, that the problem is that we are far too easily pleased. And what I infer from that is that our, the issue is not desires, it's that we turn them inward and we, we mis they're right. misplaced and not directed toward God. So, so here's, here's another one of those, uh, those biblical themes. Uh, it's two great commands. I was meant to live an upward 
life in uh, self-sacrifice and worship of God. I was meant to live an outward life in self-sacrificing love of neighbor. Uh, my sexuality is meant to be an expression of, of those two commands. And when it turns inside, uh, it goes dark. Can I, can I speak to uh, a Christian family in that? Yeah. I think that we mistake the fact, we think that a man who is not committing adultery is sexually in sight of God's boundaries. Oh, oh, not necessarily. Because if if it's just driven by my pleasure, I will use the body of my wife as if it's my object for my pleasure, as if her body has no greater purpose than my pleasure, and I will use her and walk away. I'm going to say this. I reduce my wife down to little more than a tool of my masturbation. That's a horrible thing. That crushes the identity of that woman. It's stealing God's glory away from him. It's an awful thing. But he hasn't committed adultery. But because these God isn't central and love isn't motivational, it becomes just an act of selfishness. How many Christian women dread sex? Mm-hmm. They hate it because there's no love there. There's no tenderness. There's no servitude. Yeah, they feel objectified. Yeah, they're just objects. And they're asked to do things they're uncomfortable with because it brings pleasure to the man. Uh, that's gross sexual sin inside of a marriage because God isn't central. Paul, you've been doing pastoral counseling for many, many years. Um, Imagine for a second that a a pastor or a leader comes to you and says, I I think I'm addicted to sex. What are you saying to him to help him and to serve him? Other than telling him to praise God that the plumbing works, (laughs) <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Your body's functioning the way uh, God designed. Uh, I just think that I can't, I can't handle that question in generalities because I think I want to I ask the question, what are all the cords, where are the cords broken for this man? Uh, what, what has the journey that he's traveled so that first he can own something that doesn't belong to him as if it completely belongs to him for his pleasure and how has he gotten to the point where he can do that do that with regularity do that in plays that are intensely selfish and get up on Sunday and call people to love and serve Jesus and to celebrate his grace. And he's able to have those things live in his heart without creating a debilitating spiritual schizophrenia inside of him. So I have a lot of questions about 
uh, his journey and his functional worldview and the gap between his confessional theology and his street-level theology that I want to unpack for him. But most of all, what I want to do is I want to wrap that in glorious grace. That even at that moment, his Redeemer is not disgusted at him. He's not thinking, how do we get this guy out of the book? Uh, that, that darkest sexual obsession was one of the things that drove Jesus to the cross. He, God's not surprised. And there is no pit of dark, uh, selfish sexuality that Jesus isn't deeper. Because if I, if I can't get that, him to begin to buy into that, how is he going to talk about the dark, mortifying things that we're going to have to talk about? How is he not going to continue to hide the way he's learned to hide? How is he not going to be a liar? You know, one of the things you, you, you know about any form of addiction, an addict has gotten to be an addict by being a very skilled liar. So I, I want to provide an environment where he doesn't feel the need to do that anymore. And he knows that I'm going to love him no matter what I learn. I'm not going to turn my back on him. I'm in for the duration. And it's safe, now vertically and horizontally, for him to begin to open up his heart and talk about what's going on in his life. Yeah, and he has a Savior that can identify mm. with his weakness and even his temptations. Yep. He was tempted and did, but did not sin. But at least there is a, and not only an identification, but an empathy in there so that Jesus understands the struggles that we have. Can I respond to that? Yeah. You know, some people say, well, yeah, but he didn't sin. As if that means the temptation was sort of weak. Think about this. If I have a bar and I bend it to a 45-degree angle and it breaks, and I have a bar that I bend it all the way and tie it in a knot and it doesn't break, which bar has sustained greater force, the one that didn't break. Yeah, well, and sin is the relief valve. Yeah. And so, so know, imagine by sinning, you are, you're turning the relief valve by fighting temptation. Which it's Jesus a, never did. That's right. So in ways that I don't even, he sustained the full strength of that temptation without breaking. That's very heartening to me. Yes, and to me as well. Yeah. Paul, I had Elise Fitzpatrick on a podcast recently, and she told some powerful stories. But <laughs> one of the things that it did for me is it accentuated my awareness that as a pastor, I have just not been trained or accustomed to seeing the importance of women's voices and women's influence in the church. And I, I think some of it has just been uh, an orientation. Some of it is being a boomer. Some of it is my sinful heart. Now, you are a, you are a complementarian, but I know you tend to be out in front of pastors like me and thinking about stuff like this. So <laughs> let me phrase the question this way. Where do you think 
complementarian trends have been really helpful and where have they been less helpful and perhaps hurtful? Well, I would say in every place in life, the restrictions that God puts on us are always helpful. They're the product of his love for us. Um, if you take, if you take biblical history, Israel is redeemed from the promised land. And what's the first thing God does? He gives them his law because he loves them. Mm. These people have no clue how to live. This is grace coming down yes. on them. Yes. And so God's restrictions are, are always that way. But I think what we have done in the church is we've taken narrow restrictions and we've made them uh, a broad diminishing and disrespecting of God-given gifts of our sisters who bring to the fore perspectives that you and I will never bring that we need to hear uh, and it's been it's been harmful to the church because there are voices that God has gifted that he has by his grace brought along to maturity that have not that have been silenced for what why uh Elise for example isn't asking to be something that God doesn't want her to be yet at the same time there are many places where doors are closed to her I've been in moments where Questions about the propriety of Elise being there were asked so much so that I went to her afterwards and said, I'm so sorry you had to sustain that. Hmm. There was no biblical basis for that. It's, it's complementarianism. Well, let me say this. It's chauvinism christened as complementarianism. So... What are the things that are encouraging you as you look across the landscape on this issue? Um, it does seem that there are, there are, there's more conversation. There's ladies that are contributing in, in more healthy ways. Are you, are you seeing things like that that you're pointing to and saying, now that's a good thing. We need to feed into that. We need to pray for that. Yes, I, I think there are leaders who are making that distinction that this is not complementarianism. This is male domination. This is control. This is fear. This is chauvinism. Uh, I think there are leaders who are giving voice to women like Elise. I think that has allowed Elise to share her experience that we need to hear uh, so that we understand what it has been like for her and that in places is leading for leaders to repent and uh, to be more excited about the gifts that God has given to their sisters uh, in the church. I think that's wonderful. I just think that 
that is reaching a place of more beautiful complementarianism and it's long long been needed and if you're interested in hearing more about this or, or more about Lisa Fitzpatrick, there was a podcast that was done on amicold.com uh, a couple of weeks ago that's probably already loaded that you could check out for our listeners and, uh, and just hear Elise talk about her own story and talk about her own experiences, which for me was highly educational and deeply convicting. Okay, Paul, I, I want to say yeah, one please. other thing. It's... We'll only be where we need to be when you and I are willing to sit under the teaching of somebody like Elise in places where God permits that. Um, I said to you in a private conversation that one of her recent books, Home, about heaven, is an absolute masterpiece. It's, yeah. it's a masterpiece. Uh, I said to her, Elise, this makes me never want to write again. It's just brilliant. Uh, and we should read that book. Yes. We should thank God for that book. We should sit under the teaching of that book and learn. Uh, so I, I think that's where we, we, where we need to be. Uh, where it's not, you can come in the back door and we'll tolerate you. But we're willing to affirm our need for your expression of gift. Yeah, I think for a lot of leaders, I, I think they, they want to be diligent and they want to exercise the responsibility that they've been given from God and, you know, kind of in due diligence, fulfill the responsibility of being a man, being a leader, being a husband, being a father. And, and so how they color in those responsibilities become very important. Um, so I know that a lot of the confusion is not necessarily over, uh, I think sometimes it's over men overreaching and, and wanting more or exercising too much of an authority or even a dominion. And sometimes it's a uh, just misguided efforts where, where sincere, godly men are, are trying to fulfill a responsibility and understand the responsibility being defined in a certain way. What it means to be a, a husband can be just overreaching in the marriage, but it's a vision of masculinity and headship that, that somehow they've caught. Yeah, I, I do think that much of what we're talking about is well-intentioned it's it's not um, men who find joy in uh, dominating and uh, disrespecting women but their understanding of what God has called them to as a man as a leader their understanding of complementarianism is just less than biblical and um, in, in any area of my life, there, there's this, the struggle on one hand to ignore God's call 
the other is is to go way too far with this area and bring it out of balance in my life and we all we all live in the tension of that well my friend i think i hear the dinner bell <laughs> tolling for us and so i'm going to go ahead and wrap up the interview thank you for your help thank mm-hmm. you for for writing for your vision to write for leaders and pastors and guys like me mm-hmm. that are benefiting from what you're putting in print and from your example and once again thank you for being on the am i called podcast uh, my pleasure uh, hey, there's a special offer today for, for you since you've actually made it to the end of the podcast, and that is that we're giving away seven free copies of Paul's new book. We're going to mail them to you. So the link for the giveaway will be in the show notes, and, uh, and if you go there, you can also sign up for the Am I Called newsletter. And if you sign up for the Am I Called newsletter, you'll get a free copy of Chapter 1 of the book, Am I Called? So just a reminder, the, the podcast is part of a suite of services on amicalled.com. And, uh, and, and go over, check it out, see if there's things that there that might serve you. And thanks for joining us today on the Am I Called podcast. Oh.